3: And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak
2: then? I am
0: a revolutionary. Let's is
1: about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks
0: to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House.
3: African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action blo- auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and Lock them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America. No, no, no. Not God bless America. God bless America.
2: And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good
4: evening and welcome to Our Common Ground, where truth reigns in a black sanctuary. So good to have you with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. We have Dr. Tommy J. Curry coming back to talk with us about black men and boys, and we are so pleased to be able to have him Each time he is here, we're going to be talking about not a crisis, but a chronic condition, a state. There is a deadly silence in our community, in this nation, about black boys and black men. We talk around it, we talk under it, we talk over it. But tonight at our Common Ground, we're going to be talking right at it. Before we bring in Dr. Kare, I want to remind you that you can join us by listening from your smart device at 347-838-9852. Uh, you can also listen to this discussion tonight at this broadcast by coming to our blogtalkradio.com backslash ocg and joining us in our chat room you are most welcome and uh, we would be pleased to have you come in and this is a place where we talk to each other not at each other but with each other and um, you can do that by coming to blogtalkradio.com backslash ocg When you call in and you do want to talk with us at 646, no, 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 347-838-9852, that is our call-in line. You can also call in and listen at that line. But if you want to talk to us, you have to dial the number 1. I I answered three email um no um emails last week after the broadcast, people asking me what number is it that you have to hit in order to call in and talk? And this is talk radio. That means that you are sitting there, you're listening to our guests and you're saying, But oh I know yeah, I heard that. I don't agree with that. That's what talk radio is all about. We get a chance to have more than 15 or two seconds to make, make your point. Just make your point. Uh, no, that's not how we do it at our common ground. What we do is we patiently assist because this is the university on the air. We patiently assist in providing information so that you can become informed, knowledgeable, and be a critical thinker in the matter of ideas, notions, and solutions for black people in America. This is our common ground. I do want to remind you that this is Memorial Day weekend, and here is a history note. On May 1st, 1865, former black slaves started Memorial Day in America. This occurred in Charleston, South Carolina, to honor 257 dead Union soldiers who had been buried in a mass grave in a Confederate prison camp. They dug up the bodies and worked for two weeks to give them a proper burial as gratitude for fighting for their freedom. Together with teachers and missionaries, black residents of Charleston organized a May Day ceremony that year, which was covered by the New York Tribune, which is now the New York Times, and other national newspapers. The freedmen cleaned up and landscaped the burial grounds, Building an enclosure and an arch labeled Martyrs of the Race Course. The the arch says Martyrs of the Race Course. Nearly 10,000 people, mostly freedmen, gathered on May 1st to commemorate the war dead. Involved were about 3,000 black school children, newly enrolled in freedmen's schools, mutual aid societies, union troops, black ministers, and white northern missionaries. Most brought flowers to be placed on the burial field. Years later, the celebration would come to be called the first decoration day in the North. David W. Blight described the day. This was the first Memorial Day. African Americans invented Memorial Day in Charleston, South Carolina. What you have there is black Americans recently freed from slavery, announcing to the world with their flowers, their feet, and their songs what the war had been about. What they basically were creating was the Independence Day of a second American revolution. Today the site is used as Hampton Park. That is from historian David W. Blight, who wrote for the New York Times Tribune at the time. So the arch is labeled "Martyrs of the Racecourse." Martyrs of the racecourse. Course. You're listening to our Common Ground, and thank you so very much for being with us. Here tonight, tonight we're going to be in session with Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Don't forget, the number is 347-838-9852 if you would like to listen on your smart device and move away from your computer or however you do this. This is our common ground. Stay tuned. Coming up, Dr. Tommy J. Curry.
2: Basically, like,
5: the large part of a, a race feels that they're superior to another race. And so and so not only do they believe that, but they act on it. Examples would be in class. Sometimes I'd be the only black kid. And we'd read a book, like, I don't know, Huck Finn. And then there's that uncomfortable moment, the, the magic word <laughs> come up. And people would look at you and you're like, what's his reaction and things like that. I was walking home from school, With this one white girl, and we just got off the bus. And we were about to, we were almost home, and there were these group of black kids that just got out of school. And she was like, Oh, let's cross the street. There's a group of black kids. I don't want to run into them. And so she told me, which I don't even know why she would do that.
6: It's with a sweatband, like just to reinforce my wrist. And I had a teacher call up to me and say you should take it off because it looks gang affiliated. I've been in situations where you know I had to cross the street because I didn't want to scare the white lady that was walking. I would actually it would get to a point where I would start to count how many times a woman would clutch her bag. When I was sixteen,
7: I was leaving my mom's house in my pajamas, which had snowmen on them, um, with my brother, and we were actually stopped by the police rather aggressively.
6: I've been stopped by the cops on my way between classes, because we have two separate buildings walking from one building to the other building, as my white students in the same class walk by me.
5: It's kind of upsetting, because we live in a world where my mom has to be afraid when I walk outside from the people that are like meant to protect me. And I just, I don't like when my mother feels like that. You know, I love my mother. She should always, I want her to always be happy.
7: You know, I walk tall, I keep my head up, very, you know, try to be very articulate and polite. And, um, and so, I, of course, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be fine because I act a certain way. And of course, that has absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, people, the way people perceive you,
6: you know, is not up to you. My parents taught me, oh, you know, cops are your friends. You're supposed to, you know, they're here to protect you. But all I'm seeing is the opposite. So, how can I not be free- afraid when I feel like I'm being hunted? When I feel like I'm there to fill a quota? We are in a so-called free society, and as a black man, we literally don't feel free. Um, we don't know what freedom is. Every time we're, we're killed, the first thing you see on the news is oh, criminal record, or something like that. So from the, from the second the bullet hits us, already we're starting to be dehumanized.
5: Black people like myself, we don't get as many chances as, as, as they do. So you have to be aware and you have to watch out and you can't mess up.
7: This was an extremely emotionally taxing process for me in terms of coming in terms with maybe the, the nature of, of racism in my own life and just in this country and in this world. And if you wait until somebody is 12, 13, and 14 to put that on them, it's it's really, it can be really difficult.
5: My dad, he's just like the honest one. He's like, listen son, like, there are things in this world like you have to... I have to watch out. He doesn't want me to live in fear, but he wants me to be aware.
2: I want people to know that I'm perfectly fine and I'm not gonna hurt anybody or do anything bad. I should be judged about like who I who I am and like
1: and what kind of person I am.
6: My parents would tell me, especially my mom, she would tell me, you have to endure, you have to muscle through it, and like and this is no different. It's part of being a person of color in America. And there's a certain
7: comfortability associated with that, because if I know that something is inevitable, then I know how to deal with it.
6: I, fortunately, I've had parents who have said, this is what you do. Mom and Dad, I'll be fine because you did a good job raising me. Uh, you gave me all the resources and the time the blood, sweat, and tears um, to make me a good man, an honorable man, and the foundation to survive in this country. I want you to know that I will act in an appropriate manner and do everything that you told me to do because I do love you. And I know that everything you say is not for a reason and not just to talk to talk. And I love you.
3: there's a lot about culture that we have to interrogate and when I talk about culture I mean both black culture but I also mean American culture I mean youth culture I mean hip hop culture I mean all the different facets and aspects of culture because what we're not so good at explaining either is why it is that sometimes even in the same family you have one who goes to college and one goes to prison theoretically the same home environment the same influences and very different trajectories How do we explain that? focus, resources, we take action. This is not a new crisis. Many of us know this has been around for a very long time. Uh, One of the reasons why I'm an expert on it is simply because I've been studying this and working on this for a very long time. And any problem that's around for a very long time is no longer a crisis. If you meet someone who's in permanent crisis, you've got to stop saying adversity crisis. That's their condition. The chronically debilitating condition in our community. That is the black man. And the fact that there isn't an urgent response tells you a lot about the nature of the problem at hand. Because to a large degree, America doesn't see this as an American problem, it sees this as a black problem.
2: could hardly understand mm-hmm. there only the rest mm-hmm. Pieces of a man
4: There is a very devious form of racism that shapes the lives of young black men, young black boys and black men. And there is an absence of discussion and consideration of how race affects how they are perceived and how they are prepared to defend themselves in a culture that consistently views them as dangerous and less than even in their own community. And we are so pleased to be able to have this conversation with Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Dr. Curry, thank you so very much for being with us tonight at our Common Ground.
8: Oh, thank you. Thank you.
4: I am so pleased that we have a voice of advocacy and a deeper understanding of how black men and black boys are poised in our culture and in this nation. What I am not, and why I want to have this conversation with you, what I am not understanding, and I think that many of us are not understanding, is how prevalent it is and the institutional way in which it is supported, not only by public policy but by culture and by the tenor uh, in our own communities. Talk to us about it.
8: I think there's a large misunderstanding about what it means to be a black male um, in society that's largely colored with the advances and the kind of pop culture, you know, popularity of things like feminism And, you know, even our dissentering of race, right? So even when we talk about race or race consciousness in this country, we don't talk about it like we see racism uh, emerging in real life. We don't see it as politics and policy and institution. And that's part of because of, you know, as we spoke on the program before, the Obama effect. So what happens is when you're talking about black males, you have one theory or one gender theory that suggests that because the society is patriarchal <clears throat> that black men wouldn't be its greatest victims because they're male. And on the other hand, you have this constant pushing and disintering both in popular culture and politics of we can't really speak about race. And you have intellectual movements in the academy saying you have to be – anti-essentialist. You don't want to center race. You want to problematize it with things like gender theory or intersectionality. So what ends up happening is that our conversations in society consistently see that black men are killed more, that black men are incarcerated more, that black men are constantly more empowered, less educated, but we don't have concepts or language to actually talk about them. So they become invisible. For example, when we think about <clears throat> things like child abuse or we think about intimate partner violence or domestic violence, black men are a large segment of the population, you know, as in terms of domestic violence, over 40% of the people who are victims of intimate partner violence in this country. But, you know, when we say domestic violence in the black community, the only picture we have are aggressive, violent black men abusing black women and black children. So even when we talk about child abuse, we don't see young black boys as victims. And you have to think that the situation for most young black boys, especially if they're in impoverished single-mother communities, is that they're going to be confronted not only with violence within the home, but also within society. If you take that very same picture and think of black boys who are in foster care, because young black boys are the most unwanted and least adopted groups of people there, then think about all the violence that they, that they suffer there, right? I mean, you know, Antoine Fisher's story, Finding Fish, is about that process, right? The violence that, and, and the sexual abuse and rape that he suffered by being in foster care, right, or being, being with <clears throat> a foster parent. So when you think about all the sociological realities that young black boys and black men have to deal with, the question becomes, why do we not see them? Like We see the numbers. We see the fact that they become statistics. But we don't have theories or a conversation that talks about black males as vulnerable. In fact what we find is the exact opposite, that when we think about theories that are talked about in university, people are actually arguing that because black men are the most recognized victims of things like homicide or incarceration. So when we talk about things like incarceration, you're saying, Oh, it's you know, it's so many black men in jail you know, people are actually saying, Well that's privilege, that's patriarchy so even when you point out victimization, right, and this is the problem that, that comes about when you play identity politics, even when you talk about victimization, where more black men are victims of incarceration, are victims of homicide, are victims of suicide, you have an intellectual movement that's telling the world at large through blogs, etc., that to speak about their victimization and death is patriarchal. So it really does create a silencing effect how we could actually speak about the specific things that are affecting black men and boys. So we see them killed. We see the disproportionate rates of suffering. But we don't have a language to describe that. Because in every one of those instances, it's simply reduced to racism. Zimmerman killed Trayvon Martin because of racism. Black boys are expelled because of racism. But there's also a sexual component to that. Young black boys are suspended because they're threats. Young black girls are suspended for vastly different reasons. Right? for being something like disruptive or attitudinal or their dress. But these gender or sexual differences which define black men in comparison to black women are never talked about when black boys or black males are involved in them. So even with police killings, we'll talk about gender in terms of the black women killed, but we're not given the analysis of why is it so disproportionately focused on men. And when you live in a society like we do where you see constant negativity and negative stereotypes for young black males in the media, in our conversations, in terms of the productivity, I mean, think about the the few black men that we have as elementary school teachers, and then think about the performance of young black males from from K to 12, right? When you have those kinds of problems, the society fixates itself then on the idea that this group, these people who are black and male, somehow can't elevate, they can't pull themselves up. And then when you look at that in comparison to their female counterpart, they're saying, well, then something's wrong with that black men that can't do this. If the women are doing it, then black men should be able to do it too. And when they don't, then that's what triggers, ah, maybe the stereotypes are correct. Maybe they are lazy. Maybe they are violent, right? And this is, this is all the assumptions that we deal with. You know, we deal with this in professional settings. We deal with this in society. And the thing is, is that when we have these conversations, we have to have these conversations amongst ourselves as well because it's not just white people that hold these negative views about black males. It's also black people, right? So various studies in education show that, you know, when it comes to teacher performance, even most black teachers, black males are thought to be, to be the worst off. They don't, they don't have very high expectations of black males. But then it's not only teachers, but it's also parents. Right, That they don't think that black males Can be high academic achievers So they push them off into things like sports Or they neglect it altogether right? So these, these are things that we've internalized About the group as well So if you imagine that you're walking around With these implicit biases Against this population That these young black boys Are not really going to grow up to be criminals Or they're going to be pathological Then you have to ask yourself well, What does that mean then when you start seeing These young black men thrown in jail What does it really mean when you see a black man in the street that you think may be dressed like a thug and shot, what does it mean when you see all this societal disadvantage accumulate around black men? Do you think that it's because the society targets black males, or do you believe that it's because black men are fundamentally pathological? And that's the kind of debates that are happening in the academy. Right? The, theory, the theory has decided that there's a pathology with black masculinity. So in many ways, there's an invisibility, a way of us not seeing the kind of vulnerabilities that black males suffer through in society.
4: Let, let me ask you about this whole idea of black masculinity versus black feminism. Uh-huh. I I I'm beginning to believe that especially in the millennial generation, that somehow black women especially have a very difficult time integrating the two.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, I and
4: think you're, I'm wondering why that is.
8: Well, I think I think part of it comes because in the millennial generation, identity politics, meaning the identities that you perform or that you claim, uh, kind of does the work of a historical or sociological analysis of people. So, if someone simply says that they're black, female, and queer, just announcing that identity already brings in people's minds a certain kind of standpoint and disadvantage. So that's how theory is operating or gender theory operates. Then when you talk about black males, you don't have any actual analysis of their position, so you simply presuppose based on feminist theory or black feminist theory that they have privilege. And because this privilege is defined as patriarchal, that every male in the American society has patriarchal privilege – then black feminism doesn't have a very easy way to account for the vulnerability of black men. So even when you look at some of the texts like you know, from intersectional theory like uh Frank Cooper and <clears throat> to a lesser extent Devin Carbado, you see that there's this this assumption that what black men are in fact fighting against is not vulnerability, but they're fighting against patriarchy. So you already start with the assumption that they want to dominate people. The only real question is To what extent can they, given that they're racially disadvantaged? And this is the problem that I talk about with intersectional theory, something that's also been pointed out by Thea Matua and uh, Angela Harris, is that if you look at masculinity as if it's a blanket or flat plane in the society where every male is patriarchal. The only difference is if they're a poor male, they're less patriarchal. If they're, raced, if they're black or brown, they're less patriarchal. There's only degrees by which you can't be a full patriarch. You've already set up an opposition between what you think is feminine and virtuous or feminine and vulnerable to what is patriarchal and dominant or patriarchal and violent. And this is the kind of rubric or the kind of you know, scale that you find most people operate on when they're talking about these popular culture not- notions of black feminism. And this is extremely popular amongst millennials because millennials don't read books anymore. So the, the kind of social media or pop-face idea of feminism or black feminism or intersectionality becomes the basis for it. Now, one of the bigger mm-hmm. problems, though, is the, this idea of intersectional invisibility. Now, this term has really kicked off. But there's there's a very dangerous dangerous point to it. Like, so when when you know, Purdy Hughes and and Eibach developed the theory of intersectional visibility, they were talking about the inability of people to, of 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 a society full of recognized people with intersecting identities. And what they meant by that is is that well you know, like we we're talking about with mass incarceration. Because it affects black men so heavily, you forget black people who are black and female, right? So it's that idea that even though these people are the greatest victims, that, you know, it happens to erase even people who are lesser victims. And what they did in their in their work is they said, well intersectional invisibility happens because people who are female and have other intersecting identities aren't usually victimized like you know, racialized males, and instead of them saying, "Oh, well, this shows," as someone like, um, you know, Jim Sidonias does, that well, that's because patriarchy targets racialized males. Because they wanted to stick with the feminist frame point or our framework, they said, "Ah, this shows patriarchy." So even if you show that racialized, or subordinate racialized males are more disadvantaged in a patriarchal society than women generally. The feminist idea is, ah, but the women are invisible, and the reason that men are visible is because of patriarchal privilege. And when you think about that, and see, this is why I'm always saying that we have to be suspicious of what's offered to us as theory in the university. If you think about that, then what you're actually saying and suggesting is that people who die more in a patriarchal society, people who are more subject to lethal violence and genocidal logics in a patriarchal society are still privileged by patriarchy. And even though womanhood would protect someone in a patriarchal society more, simply because they're women, you have to say that they're more disadvantaged, even though all the racialized men are dying in higher rates. And this is the, this is the b- debate in that literature. The problem is most of the people that are talking about intersectional visibility don't even know that Purdy, Hughes, and Eibach wrote this. They don't know how it's been used. That article's been cited 700 times and by intersectionality theorists, and nobody actually talks about the theory they developed. This is part of the kind of dehumanization of Black males. It tells us, it normalizes for us that we'll be, even if they're killed, even if you have 65,000 Black women in prison and 805, 50,000 Black men in prison, that even though Black men are the most, most visible and most apparent and you know pr- empirical victims of the prison industrial complex, you should not focus on them to the detriment of these other groups. So this is an identity politics logic that has nothing to do with the actual state of the world. It has nothing to do with what we can actually prove or see or study. It has everything to do about where you draw the moral line. And the problem with that is what you then do is you say, well, some lives matter more than others. Some lives matter more than others. Because you're saying that groups who aren't victimized as much are still as important, if not more important, than groups that are victimized more. And this is this is part of the dehumanization. We've We've come to expect that black men are going to be killed, incarcerated, are going to be subjected to violence so much that we're actually in the university and partly in society, like in terms of our, the Black Lives Matter movement, etc., saying we already know that, so what? Let's focus on these other groups. And when you do that, that's the completion. It's not the resistance. It's the completion of dehumanization because it ultimately says that this is so normal that it's almost natural. So what should not be natural are the deaths of black women and black trans and black queer people. Black men, well, they've already got the attention. This is just part of the structure. And when we, when we ingrain theory, and that theory moves to the blogosphere and gets diluted into ideology, our kind of a religion-based identity politic that people just take up, then that's when you have to sit back and look and say, are we actually understanding what's happening in society? In no way possible can we say people who are fundamentally victims should be ignored because they're the greatest victims. I mean, just think, of, just think about the moral repulsion that people would have if you made that same argument with something like domestic abuse, where you say, well, women are overwhelmingly the victims of domestic abuse, but let's not talk about them anymore. We already know that. Let's start focusing on these other groups. Right, And people resist that because they're like, no, we should focus on women. And the reason they do that is because there's a certain humanity that's given to women as subjects that we should protect, that we should recognize, we should understand the violence that are subjected to them. But when you talk about racialized men, black and brown men, that same kind of empathy isn't there. There's a certain kind of disposability effect that happens with those groups of people. And that's something that we adamantly have to challenge, right, because well, otherwise you know, it, they become erratious
4: you just you just brought up the the whole idea that uh, somehow we become um, immunized to outrage over what happens to black men, as opposed to the way in which we respond to racialized crime,
2: mm-hmm.
4: racialized brutality against black women. And I, I, I want to try to contain it with within that.
2: Right, what right. is the
4: historical context in which all of this began to occur? Because one of the things, too, is I have to be able for this audience to reflect this uh, uh, against the world in which they live. Right. Um, and I, I have to turn to some of the references that you made, for instance, in hip-hop music and and rap music, uh, the images of what is a man Mm -hmm. um, uh, or how we define manness in our own community. So in terms of the historical context, did this start at some point?
8: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, a lot, of, a big part of what people don't understand when they think about black males is that black men were not always considered men. And I don't mean – you know, in, in the 21st century, we think about that like, oh, you know, that just means they couldn't claim the same identity as white men. And that's not what it meant. Like in the 19th century, in the 1800s, black males were actually considered to be females. They were a feminine race. They were thought to be like – The the relationship they had to the white man and to the white female master was that of a child. Now, when black people became free, and see, this is why I'm saying it's so important to understand the sexual nuance behind racism. When black people became free after the Civil War, that's when the notion of gender started applying. And it applied to women because the idea was that black men who are no longer slave but free thereby created a threat to white femininity. So this is when social scientists start writing about gender. Like you see this huge proliferation in ethnological texts about what does it mean to be a woman? What are the facets of a true man? And for a long time, you would have ethnological studies where black men would be depicted nude. You know, people and people don't think about this. They they don't think that the black male body was sexualized. But scientists would depict black males nude. They would study their, their penis length. They would they would study whether or not they could grow beards. Beards were um, a, a sign of manliness. So when you look at the pictures of Alexander Crummell or Frederick Douglass, you see these long, full beards, and that was evidence that it was it was a revolutionary act because it was evidence that black men could grow facial hair that showed that that gave a sign of wisdom and statesmanship. So you have this huge fight from the 1800s all the way to the 1880s about this, but because of the fear of, of black political power, what was called racial manhood back then, there was the idea that, well, if black men became free, they would take white women. So what did the scientists do? The scientists said, well, if black men are, should have been slaves, but we lost that battle – and we're now saying they're female, so they should be ruled by people. Then how do we contain this argument that they're trying to push for rights? And that's when the scientists said, ah, the myth of the black rapist. So from the 1880s forward to the, to the early 1900s, you have this idea that black men are rapists. And what people misunderstand about this, Janice, is that they think this is a racial stereotype. But it wasn't. It was a biological argument right ethnologists in the 1800s were arguing that black men were like women until they hit puberty then they became rapists so one of the things that people don't understand is that next to the idea of lynching which we hear so much about there is also at the turn of the century the idea of castration right robert f williams talks a lot about this during you know his book Nero with guns and you know uh in jim crow south so Black masculinity didn't develop as an imitation of white manhood, and uh, Melissa Stein just wrote an excellent book on you know measuring manhood about this, where she was saying, listen, the the, the assumption is imitation and mimicry, the reality is sexual brutalization and vulnerability to white patriarchs and white women, because during this whole period of time that black men were supposedly fighting for their rights, they're being sexually assaulted they're being raped by white men and white women. By the time we get to Jim Crow in the nineteen hundreds, you have the same thing where white women are taking in black men to their homes, like you know, I think I mentioned Willie McGee before and raping them and when black men are found out, even in the cases where they're victims of rape, they become the rapists and they're executed. So but when you see that you know, you see those images of the fifties and sixties where, you know, <clears throat> the black workers are marching with signs, I am a man that becomes synonymous with patriarchy when it's a statement for freedom. It's not a statement of imitating white men that you're a man. It's a revolutionary statement of how the rights of people and rights of humanity should apply to the bodies of black men.
4: Now, when mm-hmm. you get to but the there 1960- was also something historically going on at the same time, and it was in 1914 that there was that first national conference on race betterment, mm-hmm. Uh looking at the idea of um, introducing hereditary and eugenics by uh, both Charles Johnson, um, then there was a Negro League uh, that looked Mm -hmm. at the, uh, uh, that was part of this conference on race betterment, and then there was Michael Geyer. Um, And uh, uh, so all of that... (laughs) <laughs> kinda like kicks in looking for a search of race, racial purity. Mm. Um and the eighteen ninety five Atlanta Exposition uh, oh, speech that that um uh, Book um uh, Booker T. Washington made reassuring whites that emancipated blacks remain their social inferiors.
8: Right. So uh <laughs> And that was to diffuse. Bunch. But notice that was that's a good point because that was to diffuse the situation. Remember, the the idea of rights, labor, and economics were considered manhood rights in the 1900s. So you're exactly right. Booker T. Washington said, "Don't worry about it. We'll stay laborers." So there's no threat. There's no competition, so to speak, between mm-hmm. the rights mm-hmm. of whites and the rights of blacks.
4: Mm-hmm. Right? And and also approve the idea of extinction of defective race members.
8: Absolutely. Absolutely, because this is, you know, this, is, this is creating the best men and best women. Right? These, are, mm-hmm. these are the aspiring black middle class that says, listen, if we create genders and create class distinctions, then that you – know, and this is what's crazy. As, as decadent as that thinking is now, then it was revolutionary because they're saying there can be groups of black people that rise to the level of civilization of white people. Right, and at that period mm-hmm. of time, because racism was so structural and ideologically saturated in the society, the arguments they're trying to refute is there is no distinction between black people; they're all biologically inferior. Right, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. We, we have to we have to give. You know, when we look at that, we have to look at how the sexuality and the gender is reflected and, and refracted around what we today think is just kind of abominable theories. And this is something else that happened in the nineteen sixties and seventies, right? Like the whole idea that you know, we've been talking a lot about the super predator because of what Hillary Clinton said. But that whole idea came about as a way to criminalize or justify rather the criminalization of militant black people from the Black Panther Party. So when DeLulo and them are talking about this rising crime wave of young black men from the inner cities, what they're doing is they're trying to extend on the criminalization of black men who are challenging social order. And this this is what I'm saying that the the criminalization of black men is not something that comes about simply because black men are overrepresented in prisons or in poverty. It comes about deliberately because it's these epics of freedom, be it the Civil War, be it the resistance and the, and the skirmishes in Reconstruction, are the challenges – I mean, because remember, they said the same thing about Robert F. Woodman, challenges of Jim Crow. And then they said the same thing again 20 years later with the Black Panther Party. These are very deliberate societal responses to black people challenging social order and making economic arguments about the function of racism. And mm-hmm. that's something but that black have theory. done very consistently.
4: Here's a theory that absolutely – both the demonization and the and, and and the criminal and evil characterization of black men and boys have have been going on since slavery,
2: mm-hmm.
4: because there were even um, references in some of the scholarly in some of the scholarly work talking about uh, how <coughs> why patty rollers and slave catchers we're so adamant about uh the tools of defense that they had against slave revolts but here's the deal Dr. Curry and I want you to talk about it is that it was not until the 1970s when you began to have this is my theory uh, a, a a a increase in the number of people in our community who were getting wealthy off of these characterizations. And I'm talking about, um, rap producers.
2: Mm
4: -hmm. Uh, I'm talking about rappers. Um, and when we begin to claim it, to claim two things, to claim the image and declare, um, you know, like two live crew to declare right. that we're we are what they've already always said in imagery and in I can't even call it music, I hate to call rap and hip hop music. it is not music, <laughs> I don't know what the hell it is, but it's not it's sound in in that genre of sound um and the other is we then begin to. Extinguish our own voice against the imagery and the characterization because we were drowned out by the sounds. Then, entering in somewhere in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, the black. ...films that exploited the images of drug dealers and pimps and prostitutes and the whole nine yards.
2: Right, right.
4: And I'm not sure if, in fact, it was also at that time where the white feminists came for the black women that they had dismissed, disregarded, and they came for the dismantlement of black women in our community who understood the import of their voices.
8: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a you lot there. You with I mean, me,
4: what I'm saying? No, I'm
8: with you. I'm with you.
4: Th- I, I mean, Because you got to think. C- well, c- I look, you know. When we claimed it, I mean, somebody, I think it was Pascal Robert, somebody, um, <clears throat> tag me in a video of DMX.
8: Yes, yeah, that's Pascal. Yeah. Er,
4: yeah, early DMX with images of just angry, out of control, seem like pathological uh, black men singing and jumping up and down with a dog uh, and calling themselves dogs and... And and calling where they where they live as Dr. Francis Chris Wilson would say, the the in the in in the hood and in the crib. I mean, and to me that is claiming <clears throat> images. Right. So I I kind of want to dissect all of that. Let's talk about. <laughs> that's
8: a, that's a place <laughs> for it. Um, well Let me let me Let's start here. Let's talk about let me... the
4: pop culture and yeah. how it lends itself not only to this demonization, this characterization, and the silence, because I am very concerned about how our community is silent. You know, for right. instance, um, in the last couple of weeks, there have been two valedictorians of high schools in this country, uh, one they w- uh, who were black men, young black men, and uh by the way my my oldest grandson is listening to this program tonight cuz he's becoming very interested in the idea of being a young black man in america he goes to high school in september and um <clears throat> somebody better write a book for him uh he, he just he, he's reading hockey <laughs> um Madibudi's book right Madibudi, now yeah, yeah. yeah so <clears> hockey <throat> used to be a very good friend of this show uh when, when we were on terrestrial radio, I, we kind of lo- like lost cuts. But anyway, let's talk about pop culture. Okay. And its engagement in the silence. I mean, people will call I mean, my grandson will say to me and other people will say to me, and Miles, I know you tried to explain to me, but I didn't get it. But... <laughs> Uh, um that people like Kendrick uh Lamar Kendrick, um uh, mm-hmm. people like J. Cole, people like Drake, <laughs> people like Usher, that they get it and they have tried to dismantle the negative and and, and dangerous uh images. Right. Um <clears throat> so but so I I, I, I went and watched a lot of hip hop videos, and one of them was Lamar Kendrick and We Gonna Be All Right.
2: Right, right. Well, when
4: I watched that video, I, 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 I got the, I got the lyrics. I, I, I saw the video, and for some reason, I don't think we're gonna be all right if that's the all right we're gonna be.
8: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, part of part of that's generational. You know, I teach I teach hip hop precisely for this reason because you know i think it's a reflection of, of certain gender norms in our communities or even political realities but um let me let me just say that i think i think you're right when we look at hip hop we we don't see the same kind of engagements that we got with you know old school r&b or soul singers about political realities right i mean today when you see a hip hop artist Like a Jay Z or someone like Beyonce doing something, it's like, oh, you know, they're using money to influence something. But you don't see people speaking out against negative stereotypes, right? You don't have, you know, your Jim Browns, you know, talking about racism and talking about what it means to be a black athlete the same way that today you don't have black hip hop artists saying, you know, reacting against these negative stereotypes. That being said, I think there's two things we have to do. We have to recognize the complicity of the black community in them. So, like, you know, with that DMX video. Yes, there was certainly a period of time, especially with gangster rap, where the environments that black people and black males specifically came from, the violence, the hardness, the kind of thug masculinity was glorified, right? And that's what you're seeing with you know, DMX and Rough Riders, things of that sort. On the other hand, while we see that those people embracing that reality and the images they see in their communities, we have to recognize they didn't create them. And one of the reasons that you see this vast gap between these these realities of working class Black folk, especially in the South, right? Because I'm, you know, where I'm from, this this was the dominant form of rap in the 1990s. <clears throat> so when you see that, you have to ask yourself, why is it that poor, uneducated, often, you know, people excluded from the mainstream economy, why are they embracing these kind of views? And that kind of goes back to what you were talking about briefly in the 1970s <clears throat> with with integration. And with the opportunity for certain classes, and that's very important, certain classes of black people to mobilize into certain elements of the economy and professional businesses, there are lots of black people that were left behind. White feminists understood that economic reality. So the kind of disdain. That they focused on was the kind of disdain was both racial in the sense that <clears throat> you were dealing with black people who wanted to mobilize, who wanted to go into the higher economic classes and kind of escape what blackness was in the 50s, 60s. we not militant. We're not trying to have a serious working class, uh, you know, perspective on the government or the state, etc. They were more reformist. On the one hand, on the second hand, it was also gendered in the sense that black feminism, at least in the 1970s notion of it. Specifically focused, and this is I'm talking about Michelle Wallace here. That that book, The Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman, focused on a specific sexual mythology of black men, right? That it, that was very much remnants of, of of the Klan or the Klansmen, you know, or what we popular, you know, we see, a lot of people see it as Birth of a Nation, right? You know, Griffiths, you know movie uh, uh, in nineteen, early 1910s 19, uh, or 15, I think. And the mythology is as black men get freedom, they want white women. Michelle Wallace makes the same argument in the 1970s. So what does that do? It means then that all the black men, right, these young black men, these students who are fighting for empowerment, fighting for civil rights, et cetera, that there's a split because now there's a distrust between whether or not the black women who are fighting alongside them will be the beneficiaries of, you know, the marriage contract to these black men now that people are saying black men want white women. And despite the fact that black men don't actually marry white women that often, it's a very small number, like four percent of all the black marriages
5: are to white women.
8: Nonetheless, people generally believe that it's like fifty percent because we we bought into this idea that black men want white women, and that's an that's a indication or that's a symbol of political power and economic mobility. So that, that's what the white feminists saw, that you can, you can split the community. You know, Michelle Wallace's mom, Faith Ringgold, uh, actually just wrote a book in December of 2015 saying this exact same point to Michelle Wallace, that your argument is, is classist, in that we've had five generations of poor black women live next to black men, and we've never thought them to be pathological. So when did you discover it? Right, and if you if you're if you're having that kind of view, that when did you discover that all these black men who have for centuries been fighting for black progress, that have been supporting black women's organization, black women education, black people community building, that suddenly in the 1970s they just switch and they want white women, right? And this also notice, notice how this feeds into that sex control we're talking about in the early the turn of the century. The idea is that if you have that belief, then ultimately you can say that militant black men. Black men who are about political activity and political life are fundamentally a danger to the rest of society because you marry it to the militancy of the black power movement. You believe that the black power movement is is synonymous with misogyny and exclusion and and violence towards black women. And notice how that character carries forward even now into something like Black Lives Matter. So even though Black Lives Matter takes on this view of using social media and pop culture, its arguments are exactly the same, that if black men – Being the greatest victims of police brutality And incarceration take the lead That it's dangerous to every other group Of black people, black women, black queer Black trans bodies So the mythology just constantly gets reinvented Time and time again But what we don't see is that this mythology Is based on the racial logics of white people It has nothing to do with the actual history Of black people or black men specifically There's not been a time Where black women have been completely excluded From political organizations Now, there is a time in the Civil Rights Movement where black men took the lead. And I always, again, ask people, when you look at that history, look at what they're confronting. People are dying. Would we have thought better of black men if they put black women in leadership positions and they all got killed? I mean, think about what that story would be like today, that these black men were such cowards that they didn't even fight for the civil rights and take the lead to defend these families and these women. But because that's not what happened, we say, ah, all these black men in the Civil Rights era died. They're gone, right? Because we hear, notice, we hear the history of the 60s and 70s, this period of time you're talking about when white feminism comes in and black feminism starts growing. The people who get to tell that story are black women because they're alive. All the black men who were there are dead. So when we look at the pop, what happens in hip hop, we look at, you know, when you get, you know, Joan Morgan's work, when you get this hip hop feminism stuff, we get all these blogs that are making this narrative. Notice that narrative comes on the back of the silence and non existence of black male bodies. You can invent that history and the historiography because the only people that can speak are the people who are alive. And, mm-hmm. that's, and that's the problem. So when you have working class black men who you don't see politically mobilizing, that's because you don't have black men politically mobilized in any great sector, maybe outside the, the church, you know, in this country. So it's a disconnection between what societal problems exist and how people respond to those problems and how those, those social movements lead to actual changes in policy. I mean, in my, I think My Brother's Keeper is a great example of that. They wanted a My Sister's Keeper. You had top-down, right? You have you know black women in the academy, black politicians, black female politicians and, and celebrities mobilized for that program, right? Something is done. With black men, yeah,
4: and the and the study and government study of black women and whatever the government study is, but there's no. I I, I Tommy, I really can't get my head around, and it is generational. <clears throat> uh, the idea that you would struggle for the transformation of a system that excluded. <clears throat> in your own in, in within the black community and and maybe we have too much exposure outside maybe we don't have enough community maybe we don't understand what communism is and, and 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 at the at the price of excluding black men
2: hmm.
4: when i began to look at the voices of advocacy for black men and black women uh black men in within our own community, I don't see very much. I don't see very many programs, uh, 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 um, scholarly programs that are are putting together the research to be able to fight back at this. both this silence because, you know, silence sometimes is a weapon,
2: Absolutely. and
4: it allows things to happen. We're at the top of the hour, and we need to take a break. Thank you for being with us on our common ground with dr. Tommy J. Curry. We're talking about black men and boys. There is a deadly silence. Black men and boys are being incarcerated at a greater rate than we've ever seen in the history of this country. Black men and boys are being their achievements and their their potential of being snuffed out in the public discourse. Our number is 3478389852 and Dr. Curry and I would be happy to take your calls uh, coming on the other side of this break and we thank him for joining us once again at our common ground.
3: We have to look at the structure of our economy. We have to look at the way our institutions function. Criminal justice system and our school system. And when we look at these institutions what we have to do is not just focus on who's in charge but the lens through which they look at our children. Because sometimes the people who have that lens are us. They don't know what they are
2: doing. They could hardly understand that they're only arresting. Pieces of a man
0: You're listening to Our Common
2: Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers. But we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers. But we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists. But we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste.
1: No matter what, know
4: your values. No matter what, know you matter. The I Declare Show, home of Real Wild Right Now Talk Media. Hi! I Declare Show is where we deal with the difficult, real, raw, right now. The I Declare Show.
1: Real, raw, right now, talk media. I Declare.
4: The I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. I'm Janice Graham, and I declare it. It's real, raw, and right now. The I Declare Show, with India Declare.
5: He doesn't want me to live in fear. But he wants me to be aware.
2: I want people to know that I'm perfectly fine and I'm not gonna hurt anybody or do anything bad. I should be judged about like who
1: I who I am and like and what kind of person
6: I am. My parents would tell me, especially my mom, she would tell me, you have to endure, you have to muscle through it, and like and this is no different. It's a part of being a person of color. In America. And there's a certain comfortability associated with that because
7: if I know that something is inevitable, then I know how to deal with it. I, fortunately,
6: I've had parents who have said, This is what you do. Mom and dad, I'll be fine because you did a good job raising me. Uh, you gave me all the resources and the time, the blood, sweat, and tears um, to make me a good man, an honorable man.
4: I I don't have an answer that is palatable to be able to to look at my children in the face and say there are people in this country who not only do not like African Americans, but they despise black men.
2: Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time.
4: And we thank you for being here with us tonight at Our Common Ground with Dr. Tommy J. Curry, free genius at Our Common Ground. (laughs) I do have some uh, notes that I, before I forget, um, on this Memorial Day weekend, long weekend for us, uh, I want to um, take a moment. To tell you that the remake of Roots begins uh, on Monday on the on your television. I, I, I swear I don't know what, but I am looking forward to it, and uh, I am looking forward to sharing it uh, with uh, the children, the teens in my family, uh, because I think that this is uh, can be a, an ignition for them to understand what history means in their lives, what we're talking about. As I mentioned earlier, I invited my special guest tonight is uh, Miles Hughes, who's joining us uh, by listening um, and beginning to put his brain in gear about who he is and what he faces and what the challenges are and what the solutions are. Uh, in regard to um, coming into manhood as a black man in this country. Also, I want to make a note that a young woman that I mentored many, many years ago, um, Cassandra Butts, Cassandra Q. Butts, she was the deputy chief of staff to President Barack Obama at the age of 50, made her transition um, in Washington, D.C. on Thursday. And uh, we certainly send out uh, our heartfelt condolences. I met her parents uh, who were so proud as she graduated from Harvard Law School um, in the same class that um, President Obama was in. She was in, I happened to be on a, uh, one of my things one of the things that I did um in my life was to hold the hands of young black women coming into the profession uh and uh she was just a really really nice person um and as Things happen, many, many people come through your life You never know where they're going to land But I was sure she was going to land in a place where she belonged And could take command Cassandra Q. Butts um, An ancestor after 50 years Uh, Dr. Tommy J. Curry is with us tonight We're talking about black men and black boys um, I want to get back to this idea of, you know, Tommy. I don't, I don't, I don't care. You know, we have enough resources in our community to somehow combat this. Because as long as we embrace, as long and our silence is a form of embracing. You know, I, I think about these two young men. One was a valedictorian, right. and he was not allowed to participate in his graduation because he had
2: a goatee.
4: Another was escorted out of his graduation because he was wearing a Kente cloth stole, and he was escorted out. Trayvon Martin was murdered in cold blood. Eric Gardner was choked on video and Murdered by New York City police officers. Um, Tamir Rice, age 12, playing in a park, city park, gunned down by police officers. Yeah. How does that happen? In a country where fifty-one percent of all the men are African American or black, how does that happen in a country where there's an eighty? We are as a as a people, we are eighty-seven percent, eighty-seven percent in the consumer index of this country. How does that happen? Explain it to me, Dr. Curry. Tell me how we are working against ourselves. Because the Whoa. shit that goes on, and Miles understands, and all the children understand, I am an adult. I play bills. That's how I get to cuss. You don't get to cuss <laughs> until you pay some bills. Uh, <laughs> how does that happen? In a well, country look. where 51% of the the population who are males are black.
5: Yeah. Look,
8: I mean, there's a, there's a few things, you know, and this is what I was saying earlier about how we misunderstand the historical origins of this country. Racism in the United States, white supremacy, we're talking about the lust for white people to be on top, the notions of white superiority, the idea that white people manage and run the economy and black and brown people are laborers. In that system, maleness, right, racialized maleness, what's done is called subordinate racialized malness, right? Becomes the victim of the most lethal forms of violence. So what we are seeing at this point in time is a kind of societal dominance of young black men that is conditioning the society. So when you see the black valedictorian, that's the outlier. When he is, when he's, taken away from holding that honor that's the society kind of closing ranks as the ideology saying that this is out of place when you see Eric Garner and Tamir Rice I mean think about this you know 12 year old boy right cops say he should have known better right that's because we make we make young black boys culpable we adultify them we make them adults even when they're children you know when these type of things happen when you have these implicit biases that because they're more adultified now, they're also more criminal-like, they're more like animals, they're uncivilized, savage. You know, this is what, you know, Philip Adam Gossberg talks about. When you have that system where black, young black boys are merely cubs turned into the black male beast, then what you've done is you've created in the minds of not only white society, right, because they're the ones committing the violence, but also in black society, you create a kind of apathy to what's happening to these people. So when you see those marches, and you remember I said this years ago, when you see those marches for Trayvon when you'll see those marches for Jordan Davis, when you see the marches for Eric Garner, notice how those things hit a peak and then they go down. They, 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 they fade out. And what takes over in each of those narratives, and sometimes you have it happen at the same time, is that black men are not a group to march for. So the same times you have people, you know, rallying around Michael Brown, what do you have? You have Ray Rice come out. Black men are black men are abusers,
2: right?
8: Same time you have a focus on incarceration, police brutality. That's putting a spotlight on black men when you get black men rapists, Bill Cosby. You see the the way the system operates is that the victimization and lethality, the genocidal logics that are practiced on black males. Become normalized because the way that it's counterbalanced, their victimization is counterbalanced, is with the criminalized mythologies of them rapists and abusers of women and people in general. So you have people, if you, if the the o Pudding Pop guy is a serial rapist, if if the you know celebrity football player that made it out of the hood is in fact a womanizer and an abuser, right? And then if that's what the people who are successful do and you know all the other people that didn't make it out are criminals, then where's the societal empathy? What's the platform that you can wage an argument for the humanity of black men and boys in this country? It's completely negated. It's completely negated. And that's, that's how racism works. People constantly think of racism as simply a denial. Oh, well, I didn't get a job. I didn't get into here because they don't like black people. But racism is the systematic deployment Of racial stereotypes Ideology and economic policy To maintain a position Of racial inferiority So if okay, you can okay. say that black men are criminal And then lock them all up in jail You get to say, see, empirically, this isn't racism They are criminal If you say black men are lazy, you get to say Hey, look how many of them can't finish college Look how many of them are poor right? When you want to say black men are in fact dangerous You point to look at how many of them commit domestic abuse And see, these same mythologies that have very, very simple And, you know, sociological reasons Become racial mythology In our society, they're racism In the academy, it's gender theory And see, this is the problem That's why you get the silencing Because what we've done is we've pathologized Black men and boys to such a great extent That there's no humanity left to wage An argument against racial stereotypes with There's okay, nothing there so, They're dehumanizing so the position so that the black community, too So when the
4: black feminists are calling for programs to fix fix black girls and young black young women they too are playing into this system of deployment
8: absolutely now i don't think that, but i want to be careful here i don't think there's a problem with us studying black women or girls i think we should do that cuz they're oppressed too i didn't say the studying is, them say again?
4: Most of these programs have identified specific problems.
8: Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah.
4: And well, they want to do corrections
8: what, and get, yeah.
4: Yeah, it's like fixing, we all need to be fixed. The the black yeah. boys need to be fixed. The black girls need to be fixed. And when those, when that kind, I call it a propaganda campaign. Well, like, it is. It's culture good.
8: deficient theory, right? Like there's something broken with us.
4: Would you would, give me give that give me that too? I could throw that around at work on my on Tuesday. What <laughs> cultural deficiency?
8: Deficiency, yeah. Is a deficiency <laughs> model, right?
4: Oh, I got that now. Okay. <laughs> no, I think. I
8: mean, think about it, right? Like, and this is what I'm saying is that the way that we treat the well, first off, the way that those programs were pitted was that my brother's keeper is patriarchal, my sister's keeper is a corrective, right? But the problem with My Brother's Keeper is what you, exactly what you're saying, is that it assumes that black men and boys are pathological. They need better role models. They need better aspirations, rather than there's a structural problem, an economic problem with why they're not graduating high school or they're not getting jobs or, you know, into college, right? So it misses the boat about what's actually wrong with black men and boys. The problem is is that if you believe that something to help black men and boys is patriarchy, and hence – Dominating of women, and you always reject that, it means that there are not going to be any programs at the activist level, unless it's grassroots, or at the academic level that's going to influence policy to direct resources to that group. So by calling them privileged, you functionally erase their vulnerability and marginalization. And that's so, the problem. see that's the problem I have with, with the way that black feminism works, is that it assumes that if you speak or center things on black boys, that that is, in fact, a form of erasure, which is just silly. If you can show that these groups are, in fact, the most, most victimized, it's not erasure. It's, it's tailoring things to the victim. It's trying to reform and correct the problem for
4: victims. So what you're saying is that, essentially, most of the of the people who advance the idea of black feminism – are essentially denying the victimization of black men.
8: Yes. That is not all they can but have, a good majority. They can't
4: have it one, both ways.
8: Yeah, I mean, but there are some people, I want to be careful because people like Angela, you know, Harris are um Matua, like they call themselves black feminists, but they they understand the notion of gender racism. So you do have black feminists that write on this issue. But in okay. the main, like okay. if you're talking about the group Right? Like if you're talking about the people that are writing from disciplines like English or women in gender studies and things like that, the people who run all the blogs no, they're they're not taking that analysis seriously
4: so Angela, right? they're not giving a structural Angela Harris, analysis of victims. Dr. Angela Harris is the person that I need to talk to um about 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 that issue,
8: yeah, I mean gender because uh-huh. their analysis you know they're actually making some I good just criticism can't against embrace the
4: idea. I can't embrace the idea of any black person saying, "Oh, um, I'm advancing the, the the ideology of black women as victims at the exclusion of black men."
2: No, I just yeah.
4: simply don't get that. Yeah, well, that's but the but distance we, between
8: the academy and the real world. You know, the Academy is about yeah, identity politics. Maybe,
4: maybe it's right? because I no longer live in the Academy, and the Academy is
5: yeah, part of a the lot. Academy
4: I was there Right, in, right. Uh, we dealt with how much it costs and how can you increase increase right. the profit on that on, on that pricing.
8: <laughs> but, th- but, see, that's what I'm saying. Like, these the gender wars that you see happen on Twitter, and, and see, this is this what I'm saying is the see, problem, right? I
4: don't right? see it. I, I don't <clears> see it. The only person that, that you know... Uh, I I don't see it.
8: Yeah, but I mean... I don't
4: read that kind of stuff.
8: Yeah, I I try not to. People tag me and stuff, but, you know, they at me. But, Mm -hmm. the the, the, see, this is the problem, right? The debates that black people are having, the debates you see about gender in this black intellectual culture, these black public intellectuals, isn't about black people at all. It's the ideas that are conditioned by white people. You see, because white people are the ones that either accept or reject the notion that black men are fundamentally pathological Because when these black feminists are making this, this argument They're making this to white audiences To black women who are in white institutions That are seeking the same kind of advancement And you know social mobility From these statements that anybody else are And the people that control all those resources That control all the online You know editorials That are doing you know the I mean who are the people like you know salon posters on feminism Those types of places Those are run by white feminists right? mm-hmm, White feminists mm-hmm. are the gatekeepers for gender theory so it's, it seems completely ridiculous to me that people are act, acting like there's not an economic or neoliberal sentiment behind why this brand of gender theory, which is so, – and notice how compatible it is, right? In the academy, you're saying black men are violent, black masculinity is problematic, black masculinity is toxic. In the society, it's the same language, except in the society, that's what gets black men killed, put into prison, or, you know, or impoverished, right, or locked out of the economy. So it's the same mm-hmm. idea. The only difference is, in reality, we're saying, oh, we've got to fight this racism in the academy. Like, this is really good theory. You just, it becomes absolved of all the racist elements that we fight against society because somebody called it theory. And when you mm-hmm. have this problem, then that's, that's what I'm saying. This is why silencing is bad because there's no platform to challenge it. Because so many things are against the idea of centering black men as being privileged or, or patriarchal or male-centered or masculine, like, or it's mansplaining. You know, there's all these little, you know, hashtag tropes and logics that are used to attack people that's trying to explain the sociological or historical condition of black males. That there's nothing you can do but be silent. I mean, there are black male academics who are like, this is complete bullshit. But we can't say anything Because we don't have a platform To argue against it Because we argue against feminism If we argue against this gender theory That we think is false Then it means it becomes You know, you get labeled a sexist Or anti-woman Or whatever other word They want to play with But that's what happens When you're doing research On this group of people Which is why I argue That the reason that black men and boys that you know that they're in the condition That they're in Is because their social position In jail and dead That position Dehumanization in the real world is reflected in the academy, so you know groups of people don't exist because there's no way, there's no theory, there's no language to describe them. There's no way to name that reality and that sound well, I mean, effect, well but I mean it spread it spreads throughout our culture too, right because yeah. what we have today with social media and Twitter you know and all these other little you know programs is these are kind of like pseudo academic communities because these are people that's in grad school or professors writing this crap. And then people are just taking it in like it's truth and fact, right? Yeah. So there's no way to question I, and get out of yeah. the public influence of this, of this kind of ideology.
4: Well, you know, it's always been my premise that uh, you can call yourself a black feminist or you can call your black, yourself a black masculinist all you want, but until all black people are free, until we break the bounds of racism and white supremacy in this country. Ain't none of y'all free and ain't none of y'all got any power because there is no such thing. Domination is not power. No I
1: agree not with that.
4: We're, <laughs> we're gonna go to our phones. Um I believe this is a strange phone call, but I'm gonna take it anyway. One one okay. one one, you're on the air. Hello Greetings, how
2: are you doing tonight?
4: Good, thank you. Hello. How are you?
0: I'm doing just fine. I'm listening to the show. you have a question show. for us? Thank I sure you. do. I sure do. Now, I have a question for the gentleman, and then yes. I'm going to follow this it Dr. up with a Tommy question G for Curry. you. Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Dr. Curry. Okay. Yes. Um, and then I'm going to follow up uh, with a question for you, and can I have your name, please, so that I can address you properly? You Ma'am. Don't,
4: you, don't, you don't know who you're, you're just dialing numbers or something? This is a radio Ma'am. show.
0: Um. Oh my God. Okay, let me just. I didn't know your name. Okay, I want you're to j-
4: gone. I don't have time for the nonsense. Six four six, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Hotel DJ, this is Jay. I
1: respect you as always, my queen. A boring Brother Curry, you know I have the opportunity to mentor young black men.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, a couple of times a week. And the thing that I find from dealing with these young men from the age to, I would say, 14 to 17 is they have no cultural identity of who and what they are as African. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: No one is explaining to them that they are African people and what their history is. And the little things that they do See, in regards to their history and culture, like Django and all of the other nonsense, it's not a true, honest reflection of what has happened to African people. That's right, why I was right. saying to BJ earlier I don't <clears throat> want to see this roots nonsense because it's not going to show the true depiction and brutality that our people faced. And I always believe if you explain it to a young African male, your only objection is to get him to read and look forward to what you address to him. And I think that's the best way because a movie, a video is not going to do it for them. They must read and see and have an idea on what the brutality really is from these people. It, it's like I'll use one example, and I think you even know what this is, when I tell them about Derby Dawes or I'll talk to them about buck breaking or, or something yeah. of that level. So I think that we have to Guide our children into being more understanding that they are Africans. And if they do that, I think they will get a better awakening than just make them feel that they're going to be a part of this whole diversity system and all of this other nonsense that's being, you know, pushed on them. Because diversity to me is a joke. Right. Well, no, look, I
8: mean, I appreciate the comment. I think you're right. Um, you know, I mean, of course, you know, black people in America are going to have a problem with calling everybody Africans. But I think you're right that the type of violence, right, an understanding of what anti-black violence in the history of that is, is extremely important. Um, you know, people are usually shocked when I when I talk about how black men were raped, you know, because, like, you know, we, people, people always say that black men are the most homophobic group in the country. But then there's, there's never any exploration of what, what the different history of sexuality was, right? Like if you're, if you're being raped from slavery to Jim Crow, then of course you have a fear, right, a certain kind of fear of, of these kinds of notions. That's not saying that I believe that everything's heteronormative or that you know, we should discriminate against gay black people. But I'm saying that the story is much more complex than black people just don't like gayness, right, or queerness or quietness. We need to focus on what actually happened to black people. You're right. Things like bug breaking included the rape of of black men. Sometimes while isolated by white men and white for women. But here's the
4: point for young for young children. And Jay, you're going to be dragging the conversation all the way into the radio show. <laughs> but but here here is the point. The point is that we live in a time in which young people depend upon imagery and I think that uh, one of the things that is important about this remake of Roots is that they have done a lot more research and infused it into the movie but the other is it gives young people a yearning uh, uh it, it, in, it it encourages and inspires more learning about what they saw
1: bj i would well, i would say this to you
4: but i don't
1: think I'm you do
4: it i don't think you can do it in isolation slavery but, but, by BJ. another name is another film that young people ought to be ought to see uh i think 500 years is another film that young people ought to see. Sankofa is another film that young people ought to see. And then you begin to give them a bedrock of information and knowledge. I'm sure it's, it's it's
1: it's no way it's no way in heaven in hell that they could change the narrative of what the story slavery was Towards African people. it just, it's they, a, they can't do anything. It's a story. To change the it's a story. Of that. It's, it's a story. Okay, well, it's a story. Sto- okay, it's well, a story. Well, well, all I'm going to say is this let's just hope it gives young people a better chance of learning what the history is and bringing it forward in regard to what the culture should be because we're in a serious time as far as who and what we are as an African people. And I'm enjoying the show, and I'll talk to you soon. Hotel.
4: I'm good. I, I think Jay has a very good point. I think that all, all children and, and, and adults, thanks, Jay, for your call, but I, I think that all children, Tommy, need to understand um, this uh, this history.
8: No, I agree, but how how much of history do do you do you think is appropriate for the child? See, that's what I mean. Like, if we
4: At certain ages, if we believe, yes.
8: yeah, I mean, because if you if you teach them about slavery, do you teach them about rape? If you teach them uh-huh. about Jim Crow, do you teach them about teach them about castration?
2: Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and that's
8: and, you know that's what that's what I was saying. If if the narrative of history becomes well, black people were enslaved, and it was un, unfair and unjust and immoral. But, you know, actually I'll give you an example You know, a few years ago, or a year ago I was at University of North Texas Giving a lecture on racism And during the lecture I started talking about You know, rape, castration, lynching, sexual tropes Things like that And a little white girl came to me And was like, well, you know, she was upset And she was like, well, you know, I thought this was going to be a lecture About racism, and it was about rape So you didn't prepare me And I looked at her with just complete disgust Because I mean, you know, I teach at college I don't have to give you a trigger warning But the other thing is, is that The expectation is that, as a as a white woman, she doesn't have to confront rape because she puts that under feminism or femininity or gender and not racism, right? So you somehow Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. divorce the idea of rape from American slavery,
4: you know? But you have that same you have that same problem in talking to people about um, about uh, domestic and intimate partner violence. Rape is a huge a Part of that scenario
8: absolutely, and people don
4: 't realize that
8: right, so that's what um, i'm saying like what do we teach that 's what I mean when we have these conversations are these conversations that are inappropriate to teach children about American slavery or even or even think about think about when we have the conversation about police brutality or the conversation about poverty right do we mm-hmm. do do we Tell them that to be poor in this country as a black person, especially a black man, is synonymous to death. Do we yeah, tell them yeah. that? You, you, you see what I'm saying? Do we tell them that yeah. when people when people pull you over for stop and frisk, you can also be analy penetrated by a baton or a gun. You see, you know. So if we're talking about racially conscious education, then it has to be a conversation that is far broader than what we just think of in terms of white supremacy uh-huh. and
4: sexual, attacking people because of black. The sexual eroticism piece. Has to be part of it, but to exactly. the point that, um, to the to the point that people are open, available, and able. I I, I do remember when Emmett Till was killed. Um, I came home from school. I was in elementary school, and um, Jet magazine had arrived. And it was a picture of Emmett Till. Well, young kids are always drawn to death and, you know, uh, I had never been to a funeral before in my entire life. So I saw this casket and, and I read the story and I was so traumatized. I couldn't stop talking about it. And my father said to me at dinner that night, why do you keep talking about this, you know? And I kept asking all these questions, and it finally dawned on everyone when one of my answers was, "I didn't know that children died."
2: Hmm. Yeah, it, it was, was
4: Emmett Till. The story of Emmett Till that informed me that children died. I, I didn't yeah. know children died. Yeah, um, no, that's you know so and. So I I think that uh, it is very important for children to understand, and the other idea is to understand the transatlantic slave um, trauma Mm -hmm. as part of their history, because most black children – are shame, ashamed to be part of a people that was enslaved. And we have to break that. And that is, Jay, how children then become connected to the motherland. when you can break that shame. American children are not informed, educated, in any way, and I'm so glad to hear Jay saying that he mentors children, he talks about our African history because most children are taught that somehow they didn't begin, their lives as a people didn't begin until until slavery, so but before before we have to close up what one of the things I want to do in the second hour is to really talk to you about the solutions to how we integrate black masculinity or mascul- masculism uh and black feminist or womanist I like to I think there's a difference I'm a black womanist I'm not a black feminist uh, i I I think you have to believe in a hierarchy before you can believe in black feminism. Mm. So how do we begin to do that? How do we grab all these people by the scruff of their neck and say, hey, you have to advocate for our people.
2: Yeah,
4: I... And you can't have one <coughs> without the other.
2: Yeah, see, But I some think... of
4: these black feminists need to be called out.
8: Yeah, well, I can't disagree with that But, And look, I think I mean, some of
4: these hip-hop people Need to be called out And I think some of these black men Who are so entrenched In uh, Ideology That is part of White The system of white supremacy And they need to be called out too No, you know, like I don't we disagree lost, with that either We lost one of our great brothers I think um, Due to Um, his ideology about the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And that was Dr. Umar Johnson. You all know I don't mind calling people's names. He had so much potential. Mm -hmm. And he's thrown it all away because he's decided he can't be part of the integration of black men and black women. Simple as that
8: people people so, have their, their their blinders you know um you know in terms in terms of engaging black feminism um i think there are some black feminists who are sympathetic um but again you know when i when i'm speaking about it i'm talking to kind of theory the the architecture of the thought and i think that because the thought is so heavily based in a bourgeois class consciousness um, that's that's representative of kind of middle class black women's experience and their relations and depictions of black men who they compete with, compete against, right, for, for certain positions in the university or in the corporate world. I don't think that that's going to change. I don't think that there's an, an inlet because in that group of thought because of their class position, it's very easy to see how – their success in reformist narratives, right because this is not a radical revolutionary sentiment, like black women take up guns or black women you know do protests or you know boycotts of x, y, and z. This argument is basically reformist it 's about social mobility, so it also buys in or it has the propensity to buy into some very negative notions or pathological views of working-class black people. And I think you see that split between what happened in Ferguson, where all the kind of public intellectuals came to Ferguson, got the snapshots, and then you had this huge you know, response from people in Ferguson saying, what now, right? You came when, mm-hmm. the, when you could get on CNN, but we're still in Ferguson fighting. Like, you don't hear anything about Ferguson anymore. Uh, so I think that's a class barrier. Uh, in terms of how you integrate this conversation of black men and boys, this is where I think there has to be, there has to be accountability from the community level. So at the communal level, what you see are people who actively mobilize around the deaths of black men and boys. And then what you had were bourgeois NGO-type people, you know, that came in, like, you know, in the Black Lives Matters groups that started saying, well, we need an intersectional movement. Well, the problem with that is that you have – You know, college-educated or, you know, people who are linked with people in universities coming in and trying to direct and control the discourse for working-class people. There needs to be a pushback against that. So I'm saying that there needs to be a very serious pushback between poor working-class, black and brown peoples, men and women, against the kinds of theories that are being used as the popular face of black culture. So if you're going to have a movement where everybody in the movement's, you know, black female, queer, queer, etc. And then you're saying, but we're capitalizing over the deaths, or we're holding this movement over the deaths of black males who they constantly depict as being straight then there needs to be a conversation about whether or not that leadership is an actual model. Why are the people who are not the most victimized not leading the movement? The other thing is we have to start start uh, black male studies courses in the university that links up to communities. There needs to be more active engagement with the problem of black men, and not only in terms of their failure. Education does a great job trying to get over the deficit model of young black men and boys. But the problem is we don't have theories that explain the vulnerability. We need academic relationships with churches with communal organizations etc that are explaining and teaching young black males about their vulnerability and then what it takes to overcome those types of things because right now you have this huge gap between what's the actual facts of the world and then how black people in the community understand these vulnerabilities and notice how the one thing that black feminists have been very good at is controlling the propaganda machine that they produce a theory in the university and then it trickles down through blogs and through community activists or people working in different groups to the community. We need the same kind of model where we have black men and boys that are centered and talk in their vulnerabilities talking about. We're supported by research and theory and then trickle down to the community. And the last thing is we need a more active public intellectual community around the problems of young black males. One of the things that happens now is that because of identity politics, no scholar wants to come out and speak about black men unless it meshes up or parallels the idea of gender theory that's presented in intersectional theories. I think that you need we need to have a more robust um, it's public, black public intellectual culture. That's willing to actually go out. You know, people like, you know, on Roland Martin. I remember when he did the the Ray Rice picture. I Are him, you uh, calling you know.
4: Roland Martin an intellectual? No, okay. no,
8: I'm, I'm no, sorry. No, he's a talking. Oh. No, no, please don't miss. No, no, he's not that <laughs> <Okay>. at all. Okay, <laughs> <I'm here. laughs> <laughs> but one of, the things that, one of the things that happened, though, is when he was talking about Ray Rice and stuff, and he was posting all this stuff on Twitter, I was like, listen, you're really framing the research incorrectly. I was like, when are you going to talk about the conditions that start domestic violence? When are you going to talk about black men who are abused? Because this is, you know, like if you have a history of abuse and trauma, that predisposes you towards these kinds of things. And he was like, oh, I don't want to hear that. That's the problem, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't, what mm-hmm. you have on these black talking head shows is you have them buying into a certain narrative that has nothing to do with the research, Right, that has nothing to do with what you're actually saying and, about and black they people. And they're afraid so to it, be,
4: be, be targeted by the bloggers. The famous, well, yeah, exactly. Bloggers. Yeah. Exactly, mm-hmm.
8: and, that's, and that's what I told them. I was like, well, you give audience. certain – Yeah, that's your audience because I, I challenge them, why aren't you inviting people who actually study black men and black boys to talk about black men and boys given that you're having shows about black men and boys being killed? It was a very simple question. you know, mm-hmm. But that's what I mean, that the information that's available to the black community gets so diluted by these politics, by the blogosphere, by the fear of a backlash from this kind of cadre of, of scholars slash politicians, that that's what becomes the problem. So in order to in order to counteract that, it has to be a mobilization not only of people that's trying to argue about the vulnerabilities of young black men and boys, but people who are both on the historical side of things and the economic side of things. Because when you look at the prison industrial complex, when you look at downward mobility, we look at undereducation and unemployment. These are economic aspects of labor that have been codified by the race and structure to affect black males in a certain way. If you're only talking about black men, black men, black men are, you know, are targeted, you're missing why they're targeted. We have to go for nuance and understanding because that's what's going to direct policy. That's going to help teachers understand what ways they may be able to help or overcompensate for the disadvantages that young black males have in the world in school or through life lessons or mentorships, things like that. So this, com- this means a complete reformulation of how we think of you know gender discussion and race discussions and it also requires for the Academy that we start getting chairs in black male studies where we where we understand that there's a problem with how black feminism has dealt with the pro with, with the sociality and subjectivity of black men. So we try to start programs, disciplines, places where you can get degrees, a named chair in this area that's actually talking about the vulnerability of black men and and boys that, hasn't so happened that this could be generated at, say
4: for instance Howard or Morehouse no. College.
8: No, it hasn't, right? And, that's, and that's a pro- to me, that's a problem, right? You have, I mean, Spellman has a chair of black feminist studies, right? I think Beverly guy Hall still holds the dad Julia Cooper chair, right? But there is no chair anywhere in the country on black male studies, right? Because as a discipline, it just doesn't exist. You have black masculinity theory. You know, people like Mark Anthony Neal, these people right in that area. But there's no formative, you know, text or discipline mm-hmm. that's dedicated to mm-hmm. studying black men outside of the pathology of sexism. Right, Our dominance And that's something that we need to have in order to counteract This kind of homicidal rage that black men are constantly victims of in
5: American society
4: Let me ask you about your future In studying, researching, writing about black men and boys Your book Mm -hmm. Which I didn't receive a copy You can call your publisher and tell them
8: it wasn't, it's not out yet. It's still it's still being reviewed, but you know okay. but I, may, I will make sure as soon as it comes out, you will get a free autographed copy. I promise.
4: Yeah, because I will call. I will. I know will you will. Really be a I know. really <laughs> no, I yeah. I
8: don't, I don't want to deal with that, Janice. I don't want to deal with that.
4: <laughs> um, so uh, I, I'm really baffled by this idea that we are co-conspirators. In the silence on black men and boys Right As a community
8: Yeah I mean Listen you know Again this is what I'm constantly saying That we have to understand That racism is not something that's purely located In the actions of white people Some of those ideas are internalized
5: and, mm-hmm, you know,
8: mm-hmm. and and when we, you know, and that's what I mean, you know, it's not like, it's not like you can't be a progressive black feminist that talks about black men. But the reality of the situation is, given the texts that are out there, the lack of research about black men's sexual and gender vulnerability is more likely than not that you just have no mm-hmm. idea about it, right? Yeah. And when you don't I'm have any idea. That,
4: I'm, I'm hoping that Dr. By, Byron Price and some others are, are out there listening uh, tonight because i think that this has got to be uh part of a movement to relieve the silence uh in our prisons
2: right
4: as part of the theoretical therapeutic uh, approach to men who black men who are incarcerated to their families to their sons uh I I mean I could very well see a a a forum being held in a Massachusetts prison for black men to be, 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 be to begin to understand um the culture of black male demonization mm-hmm. and 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 have it framed in a way that they they understand to the extent to which their families and their communities are affected by it and to have them understand that the silence won't be permitted we yeah. tolerate and permit too much Dr. Tommy Curry thank you so very much for joining us tonight we're going to have we keep having this conversation and we keep coming to the point where the research the actions to remove the impediments of of what i think is a deadly silence on black men uh and black boys and i am particularly concerned uh, on a very personal level i have uh, my 14 year old grandson who's listening tonight who is absolutely brilliant uh is a wonderful wonderful person and um there's something out there waiting for him other than all the achievements that we expect and know that are going to happen for him in his life, and a four year old um, who wants who has been begging and making the case for a water gun, and his parents won't allow him to have a water gun, and it has to do with this right well. it it really has to do with him being a black boy in a world where there was a deadly silence on black men and black boys and so because he is placed in this box he can't have a water gun
2: yeah i've
4: been trying i've been trying to explain to him there's a difference between a water gun and a water pumper but um he just uh can't have it and he wants it and it's because he's a black boy, we can't get robbed of,
8: of our childhood, you
4: know
8: yes, we certain toys i mean this is you know this is the this is i mean this is the society we live in, and i mean it's', it's ridiculous, it's ludicrous, yeah, and because it's a gun, yes. that we yep. that a child like they manufacture the toy for child for children
4: for children but because yes.
8: he's a right, because he's a black male child, he can't play with a water gun because the perception of the dominant white culture. Is that a water gun's a real gun, and you know that he'll be killed. So think. So yes. think about the the repressiveness. Yes. Like, right. Absolutely. Like the, the the youth that stole from these black boys, and then when they become black men, and you see all these things like depression and maladjustment, or you know, violent personality disorder, or you know, or disengagement. I mean, pick. Are they are they are intimate partner violence because they don't mesh well or deal with conflict well? What yeah. do you think is going to happen? Like I mean, like seriously, like you you put you put death on a child. You tell them they can't do certain things. Their peers inevitably either die or go to jail, and then you say, "Oh, but mm-hmm. we expect you to be a completely normalized and optimal adult that's human right. being." It's silly. Yeah, it's
1: silly, yeah.
8: and that's what I mean. Yeah. We don't we don't study we don't study their lives seriously. We only report their deaths, and that's. That's the problem with gender theory now, is that we think that reporting the deaths of young black boys or black men are the same as reporting or talking about or understanding their lives, and it's completely two different things.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
4: Thank you so very much, Dr. Tommy J. Curry at Texas A&M University for being with us. Uh, no, thank he you. is also one of the our common ground interlocutors, and we're going to have them back soon. Tommy, have a great long weekend. I will And give big hugs to those two beautiful girls that you have
2: I shall And a hug to
4: you. your wife, your wonderful wife, Gwinnetta Who I love talking to on the phone
8: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, She's a pleasure
4: Yeah And you going to play some tennis this weekend?
8: I am We had a rainstorm so I went and checked on the courts today To see that they were okay So yes, yeah, so we will be playing tennis this weekend
4: well, I'm going to have to call you because uh, I'm buying the boys. Tennis rackets for the summer. <laughs> okay.
8: Well, yeah, definitely give no me a call. No more
4: basketball. For the right thing yeah.
2: <laughs> okay.
4: <laughs> thank you, Dr. Tommy J. Curry, and thank all of you for being with us in that wonderful discussion. Um, next week at Our Common Ground, guess what? Alpha is going to be taking the mic, all things politics, with Alpha of the Alpha Show from TruthWorks Network. Alpha has been off the air for nearly a year now, over a year now. And uh, I'm going to be away um, on a wonderful little jaunt. Um, we're going to a Quincenera which is a Latin celebration of a wonderful family friend. She is turning 15, and I want a big shout-out to Lorena and tell her how proud we are. Her family is celebrating uh, in the Latin way, and Miles is going to be on her court Um So Alpho is going to be taking the mic for me on next week. He'll be here for two hours. We hope that you will join him. And don't forget, um, there are two things I want you not to forget, and that is the ancestral imperative to do the best you can for the race and by the race. The book uh, choice for the month of June at Our Common Ground is Revolutionaries to Race Leaders Black Power and the Making of African American Politics. The author is Cedric Johnson. He is a professor of African American Studies and he was awarded the W.E.B. Du Bois Outstanding Book Award from the National uh, Conference of Black Political Scientists. And the book, again, is, and I'm posting it in our chat room uh, from 2007 when I read it, but it is absolute must-read for us today. The author is Cedric Johnson, Dr. Cedric Johnson, and we're going to be reading this book all for the month of June. Thank you so much for being with us, and don't forget to come and join Alpha next uh, Saturday night at 10 p.m. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Have a good long weekend.
0: Would say, well, I never necessarily said that we were in a post-racial society. I just kind of explored the idea, and that's really an idea given given what we know about America, given what we know about American history, given what we know about the state of Black Black America and Black affairs. That's really a conversation we never should have had because it is it, 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 woefully naive to even have a conversation about that. You know, just just because a one man has been elected president, that this. You know, we have this. It, it gives credence to this sort of idea that because Obama elected president, that we have somehow arrived, and 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 that's what Black people played into during early 2008, 2009. You know, Obama is here, so we're here too, and you know, we have arrived, and we arrived with him. And what we saw in the Obama administration is that not only did we not arrive with him, we did worse under him. So how do you grapple with that in the initial post-racial analysis? And I think something, one thing that people are also arriving at. At this point, another reason that you'll see a lot of black pundits fall apart is that they were wrong. You know, Torrey was wrong. You know, every everybody who said that, you know, you know, uh, you know, uh, comparing uh, with which Tanahashi Cosby kind of comparing uh, Obama to Malcolm X in any kind of sphere is wrong. You know, everybody was. I've never seen uh, another political event where so many black pundits have been so wrong. And it's not even just pundits. I remember Chris Rock saying, you know, Obama's going to hook us up, whatever, in the second term. All of that stuff is wrong. So I think think as we revisit, you know, who Obama is, what he was, what his legacy was, you know, and, and it's not a good one if you ask for my estimation, you're going to see that, you know, a lot of these people that we trusted, to kind of give us commentary and speak from a a space of black politics, we're actually speaking from a place of black identity, and 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 actually sort of looking at Obama through a kind of messiah like lens, and that's a problem. And I think we don't need that kind of influence in the black community because it hasn't it hasn't it hasn't boded well for us.
4: you for joining us on our common ground tonight speaking truth to power and ourselves join us next saturday night when alfo of the alfo show truthworks network will take the mic i'm janice Grant and i'll be listening for you